Good morning, Orangewood. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you. My name's Chuck Berry. I'm privileged to serve as one of the pastors here, and I'm grateful that you're here joining us in corporate worship. Whether you're here on campus or worshiping with us online, we're grateful that you're here. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we're blessed to be worshiping you openly, freely, and together this morning. On this Memorial Day weekend, we thank you for the many brave men and women of our fine military and first responder organizations who through the years have made the ultimate sacrifice in the line of duty to courageously provide, protect, and preserve the freedoms that we enjoy and are enabled uh, to experience this morning. Help us to remember that our freedoms are not free, but have been bought with a price. Remind us that all good gifts ultimately come from you. And for this, we say, thank you. Thank you for the supreme sacrifice of all your son, Jesus Christ, whose willing sacrifice has made us new unto eternal life and who sets us free from the power of sin and death. God be praised and be pleased to continue to inhabit our worship for the sake of your power, honor, and glory. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. I have a question. Weird one. Have you ever seen the inside of a baseball? If you haven't, you might be surprised to know that beneath the stitched outer cover is a tightly wound ball of gray and white yarn. That if you pull on an end of it, the ball begins to unravel and unwind. And as you keep pulling, the ball gets smaller and the pile of yarn yarn on the table or at your feet gets larger. It's kind of an interesting little experiment. It's kind of fun. And with some perseverance, you finally expose what's at the center. And you find a small rubber ball that itself has a core made of a cork that's called a pill. So why do I share this with you? Because my process of sermon prep for this morning was a similar process whereby I opened the leather cover of my Bible. I discovered one single verse in the book of Mark, a scriptural thread of yarn, if you will, and I started pulling on it, and it began unraveling. I looked at parallel verses. I looked at some other texts that the Lord, by his Spirit, led me to, and it took me deeper in, deeper into his heart, deeper into what it means to know God and to have Christ as my savior, my champion, my true elder brother. And he began to show me things. So I want to share that with you. So in a minute, we're going to read God's word and we'll jump into this pile of unwound yarn together to discover what God has for us. I'm going to read two passages uh, to give you context and then I'll read them in order as they happen. They're both gospel texts. But be aware, the verse that started me all off on this will be the very last verse that I read in the second text. If you're able, would you please stand in reverence to the word of God and follow along as I read. The first text is Matthew 16, 21 through 25. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders 
and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The second text is out of Mark 15, verses 15 through 21. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in purple cloak, in a purple cloak, and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to, be crucif to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. This is the word of the Lord. So this last verse that I read in Mark, verse 20, you can be seated. This last verse that I read in Mark about Simon of Cyrene carrying Jesus's cross, that was my starting point where my yarn pulling, if you will, began. And it led me to numerous places. First, it led me to two parallel passages. This verse in Mark is a one-verse historical narrative packed with information. One verse. And the other two parallel passages in the other two Gospels, um, Matthew and Luke, those also are simply one-verse narratives. So what I did was I, I did a holy mashup if you will, and I combined all the information from these three one-verse narratives and put them all together. And I want to read that to you. It says this, as they led him, Jesus, away and out of the city, they seized the passerby who was coming in from the country, a man named Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So we're going to start here and let's examine what we have in this information. What can we learn? What may God want us to see in this very unusual encounter with Jesus in the final hour of his earthly life prior to his crucifixion? Let's look at the pieces. So what we learn about Simon. First of all, he's a man named Simon. <laughs> Simon had a Hebrew, uh, the, the Hebrew version of Simon meant listener or obedient. And so that's his name. His name is Simon. There are other Simons that we know in Scripture, correct? We know of Simon Peter. We know of Simon the Zealot that was one of the, one of the disciples. Um, and this Simon, where's he from? He's from the city of Cyrene. Cyrene is located on the northern coast of North Africa, the northern coast of the Mediterranean. 
It's 800 plus miles away by land. This is an arduous task to travel from Cyrene to Jerusalem. Um, some say it would take about 57, 60 days to walk, 30 days to ride on horse or camel, six to seven days if you take a ship to get from Cyrene. And then you have to still travel on land to get to Jerusalem. So it's a major trip. That's where Simon is from. Simon is entering Jerusalem, and it says he's entering Jerusalem from the country. Well, we know that from the context that the Feast of Unleavened Bread has begun. That's why Jesus celebrated the Passover feast with his disciples the night before this event. So Simon is entering Jerusalem from the country. Why? We also know that during these feast weeks, Jerusalem would swell in population. There wouldn't be any place to stay. So it is likely that Simon is coming in from lodging outside of the city, just like Jesus and his disciples did on occasion. So he's entering Jerusalem when? It's Friday morning. Friday morning of Passion Week. Jesus has had, if you will, a hellish of a night. And, and, and Simon is coming into the city, and Jesus is coming out. Not alone, however. He's with an ex, an uh, execution squad, if you will. Roman soldiers are with him. Members of the religious elite are with him. Uh, morbid spectators are with him. There are likely professional mourners with him and true mourners, true followers of Christ. We know there's some of those with him as well. And they're coming out of Jerusalem. And where are they heading? They're heading to Golgotha. And Jesus is too weak has lost too much blood, has not had enough sleep, is under extreme emotional duress, spiritual duress. We know the night before he prayed in earnest and sweat drops of blood. He was betrayed by his own, denied by his own, all during a very short period of time. And here he is carrying a 250 to 300 pound cross to Golgotha. It's about a 0.6 mile trip from Pilate's Praetorium to Golgotha. So we're probably talking about a half mile from the gate to where he'd be executed. So what, what happens? Simon meets this crowd and Jesus can't carry his cross. Simon is seized, one of the gospel writers said. He's forced by the Roman soldiers to carry Jesus' cross. And he takes up Jesus' cross and he follows behind Jesus to Golgotha. And then there's this interesting note in here that Simon is the father of Rufus and Alexander and we'll come back to that. So here's what struck me about this text. As I continue to unwind the, uh, the baseball, right? And I'm trying to find what's deeper, what's inside. I keep unraveling and it hits me that Simon is fleshing out in clear three steps something that Jesus taught his disciples weeks, maybe months earlier in a different setting. And Jesus is teaching his followers what discipleship, true discipleship is to look like. It's to look like one who denies himself, takes up his cross, and in Simon's case, his cross that he is to bear is 
Christ's cross and follow him. And it just struck me that this one verse historical narrative is like a prophetic realization of Christ's discipleship training of his followers. And I just thought it was amazing that it was all packed in one little verse. So note, Simon's actions, they vividly portrayed the step-by-step directions Jesus had given his disciples weeks earlier. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Well, Simon the Cyrene was coming after Christ, if that's the case. We don't have any indication that he knew who Jesus was when he came upon this situation. All he knew was that the soldiers had commanded him to carry this cross and he saw the circumstances and he submitted and he did it. So how do we know how God used Simon? I mean, how do we know what Simon's response was at the end of this day? We don't. And I'm, I'm so curious that Simon would so clearly fulfill the obligations of discipleship, and yet probably at the beginning of the day, he didn't know who he was. He may have just assumed this is a criminal, and I, this is my Roman duty. The soldiers have this authority. I'm going to submit. How do we know what happened during that day? As he followed Jesus to Golgotha, did he stay? Did he watch him get crucified? Did he experience the events that happened up there? The earthquake, the darkness, Christ's demeanor, praying for those that were executing him, hearing the conversation between the thief and Jesus. I don't know. We don't have that. But God has left some clues for us in his word. And that's what I love about the scriptures. And I love how the Holy Spirit can illuminate his word and take us deeper in to God's heart. There are clues that reveal a longer term impact of Simon's encounter this morning, that morning. So let's look at them. Mark 15, 21. It's the same one, one verse. And it's that weird addition of the father of Alexander and Rufus. Listen, this is Mark. John Mark writing this. John Mark is friends with Paul. He knows Peter. He has served with Barnabas and Paul. He's acquainted with the closest followers of Jesus. And he writes in this one small pithy verse, this one detail of Simon. No other explanation. The father of Alexander and Rufus. Why would he do that? Why would he just have that phrase? The assumption might very well be because these two people are very familiar to him maybe friends. And the reason in his letter, in his gospel letter, there's no other explanation, could be because his expectation is the audience of his gospel letter also is well acquainted with Alexander and Rufus, the sons of Simon of Cyrene. I think that's very likely that the sons of Simon are well-known followers of Christ 
at the writing of the Gospel of Mark. So what impact did Jesus have on Simon? We don't have the details. If we look at the next, chap, the next uh, verse, Romans 16, 13, this is the end of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And it says this, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. We don't know if this is the same Rufus. <laughs> but it certainly could be. And then one more verse. Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, and a longtime friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, which in this case is actually Paul. This is the missionary church in Antioch. And here's a list of its prophets and teachers. And there's this Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger's the Latin word for black. Some commentators believe that Simon of Cyrene was a black North African. So God's left us all these clues. So without going too deep for time's sake, listen, here's my extrapolation. And I think it's quite reasonable that this man who carried Jesus' cross that day was vastly impacted by his encounter with Jesus. And it resulted in at least his two sons becoming prominent followers of Christ, known to Mark, the gospel author, and very likely the audience of this gospel to whom it was sent. So apparently not only did Simon of Cyrene deny himself, take up his cross and follow Jesus under eternal life, so did his sons and possibly his wife as well. I just think that's pretty amazing to drill down into this one little verse and see these things, these connections. So I have four takeaways from the unraveling of the story of Simon of Cyrene. Let's go through them. Number one, with God, no life moment is insignificant or meaningless. No life moment. No matter how insignificant you think it is, it's not. If Simon were five minutes early or five minutes late on that first Good Friday, he would have missed the moment. But I believe he so perfectly fulfilled Christ's teaching of discipleship that he was chosen before the foundations of the world to be exactly where he was, when he was, to experience what he experienced so that his family would be transformed and they would be ministers of the gospel in the New Testament era. There are no life moments that are insignificant or meaningless. And God is no less sovereign today than he ever has been. And the fact that you are in earshot of Simon's story all over again is not a coincidence. You are here this morning to have your own encounter with Jesus. This is important and it's purposeful. Set your intentions afresh this morning. Is he getting our attention? Second takeaway, number two, to deny yourself means to lay down your rights. Simon likely was coming into Jerusalem to worship Yahweh in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. 
He had an agenda to follow God and to worship God. His agenda got arrested. He was preempted. God's plan for him completely threw his plans to the wind. Yet when he was confronted by the Roman soldiers, what did he do? He did not resist. He complied with what was happening to him. He sacrificially served, even though he likely did not want to. And we see how God worked it out and how God used him mightily. Was he joyful in doing it? I doubt it. He didn't know what he was actually doing from heaven's perspective. He probably didn't even know who Jesus was from the start. He probably was reluctant at first to embrace a bloody criminal's cross and share in the shame and the scorn of that criminal. Unclean he would become, but Simon learned obedience by what was seized and forced upon him to do. He was denied his rights, but perhaps he actually denied himself his own rights. Let me read you a list. I read this from an article. I thought it was so interesting. Was, the article is actually 12 biblical things, 12 biblical ways to deny yourself. Here they are. I'm just going to read them and let them kind of wash over all of us. Number one, how do you deny yourself? Deny your right to put yourself first. Notice they're all scriptural. Deny your right to live by your own rules. Deny your right to be honored and served. Deny your right to complain. Deny your right to a good reputation. Deny your right to express your sexuality how you want. Deny your right to spend money however you please. Deny your right to avoid risk. Deny your right to hold a grudge. Deny your, deny your right to hate an enemy. Deny your right to rebel against authority. And deny your right to understand God's plan before you obey it. Wow. So what does it look like to deny ourselves? It looks like obeying Jesus' New Testament teachings. And here's the amazing thing. When we're close to Christ and we're following him, we are obeying him. I want to stay closer to him. Moment by moment. Daily. I want to deny myself. Pick up his cross. And follow him. Takeaway number three. Oh, wait a minute. Back up. Let's look at this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's on self-denial. It's worth seeing. Self-denial means knowing only Christ. No longer knowing oneself. It means no longer seeing oneself. Only him who is going ahead. No longer seeing the way which is too difficult for us. Self-denial says only he is going ahead. Hold fast to him. I love that. All right, moving on to takeaway number three. Takeaway number three is this, to take up his cross, and Luke adds the word daily, means to move from surrender to abandonment. 
and I apologize for using myself as the example, but it, this hit me as I was preparing the sermon. I had kind of a two-part conversion, and maybe that has happened with people in here. I had an experience in middle school where I went to a Billy Graham movie, and I heard the gospel. And believe me, I heard it because I was a seventh grader, and I was the first one in my class by God's design. I walked the aisle in a public movie theater at the end of a Billy Graham movie because I knew I needed a savior. I knew I was a sinner, and I knew I needed Jesus, his work on the cross on my behalf, and I surrendered my life to him that day. But I had about 10 years from seventh grade until my mid-20s when I was not close with God, when I think what he did was he hooked me in middle school and then he let the tension out on the fishing line and he let me run. I was hooked, but he let me sow oats that I regretted and that showed me the depths of my sin that caused me to come running back in my mid-20s. And I went on a singles retreat and I prayed a prayer. I was asked, encouraged, shown this prayer. And here was the prayer. Anything, anytime, anywhere, Lord, I am yours. Can you see the abandonment in that prayer that was different from the typical sinner's prayer that you might pray? There's abandonment in that. Anything, anytime, anywhere, Lord, I'm yours. And I have to tell you that when I prayed that in my mid-20s, it was a matter of hours that my desires changed from within. I wanted to change my playground and my playmates. Whereas up to that point, I did not. Well, that's all God's grace. That's just how he chose to work with me. He works with, with us differently. But here's how the apostle Paul speaks of abandonment to the call and cause of Christ. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's awesome. That's abandonment. He has no life apart from Christ, and he's expressing it in his letter to the church in Galatia. A French missionary monk named Charles de Foucault, who was martyred at the very beginning of World War I, he wrote, he wrote poems in his time alone with God, and this was one of his poems. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I am ready for all. I accept all. For I love you, Lord, and so need to give myself, to surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence, for you are my Father. There's something beautiful in abandonment to Christ. All right, the last takeaway. Number four, following Jesus is a walk, is a walk in the light, not a run, in intimate, purifying dependent partnership with the Godhead. The Apostle John talks about following Jesus in terms of walking with him. Walking. And walking with him as he is in the light. He is the light. 
So following Jesus means walking with him. So let's look at a couple passages. In 1 John 1, John writes this, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, koinonia, partnership with and partnership in. It's not a shallow kind of relationship. It's a partnership. It's a cooperation. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins while we're walking with him daily, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There it is. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, the very instrument by which you are forgiven and cleansed because of the shed blood that is on it. And you carry it with you everywhere you go. And it's this paradoxical, sobering reality and joyful exaltation happening, all mingled together at the same time. So following Jesus means living life in deep fellowship with him by his word and by his spirit. There's an intimacy to it. I know we know this. We know, we know that Christianity is not religion, it's relationship, right? Most of us all, we've heard that so much. Can I just ask you a, one simple question? Are you intentionally pursuing depth in your personal relationship with Jesus? Are you? Or are you like me and I live a hurried life? Dallas Willard said, the, the greatest enemy to spiritual formation is a hurried life. He said, ruthlessly eliminate hurry. That's the most important thing you can do for your spiritual health this morning is consider how you can ruthlessly eliminate hurry out of your life. And why would you want to do that? So you're not ahead of Jesus, but you're walking with him and even better, right behind him. Last verse, 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. I think that's so interesting. How did Jesus walk through this life? Is there any text in anywhere in scripture that shows you Jesus hurrying somewhere? He was secure in God as his day planner. And he walked patiently, persistently with his father everywhere he went. And we see all through the gospels, he took time after time after time to be alone with his father so that he could listen. Isn't it interesting that the name Simon means listener or obedience? Jesus talked about being yoked up with himself. When you're yoked up, a new animal that's being brought to the field is yoked up with the most experienced one. Why? Because in very short order, that new animal learns how to do it. Jesus said to be yoked up with him is easy. I'm beginning to understand what that means. If I'm drawing close an intimate relationship with him and I want to be with him, 
The yoke is easy because I want to be with him. Wherever he goes, I'm ready to go. It's easy to follow him. That makes sense. Are you yielded to be able to go where he leads you? Or are you resisting him? Or are you ignoring him? Or are you a mile out ahead running as hard as you can on your treadmill? Are you willing to go at his pace? He's rarely in a hurry. I want to close with a story about a evangelical leader in the Church of England in 1732. His name was Charles Simeon. He was ordained in 1732 after he finished at Cambridge University. He was appointed to preach in a church directly across the street from the university itself where he had done his college work. In that day, Cambridge, imagine this, was an extremely godless and unholy place. No difficult, not difficult for us to, to think about when we consider any major secular university campus. The students and professors on this campus at Cambridge were extremely antagonistic towards the Christian faith. When at the age of 23 and right across from the campus, Charles Simeon began preaching Christ and him, cruci Christ and him crucified, a college crowd outside the church started throwing stones at the building through the windows while he was preaching. They would stand outside the church and heckle the people in the church. They would even come into the church and make trouble there. They also physically accosted Charles. One day when Charles was really feeling the effects of this hatred, violence, and resistance to God, he wrote this, quote, when I was the object of much contempt and derision in the university, I strolled forth one day, buffeted and afflicted with my little testament in my hand. I prayed earnestly to my God that he would comfort me with some cordial of his word, and that on opening the book I might find some text which should sustain me. The first text which caught my eye was this, quote, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. You know Simon is the same name as Simeon. Simon writes, Simeon writes. And then he continues, what a word of instruction was here. What a blessing for my encouragement to have the cross laid upon me that I might bear it after Jesus. What a privilege. It was enough. Now I could leap and sing for joy as one whom Jesus was honoring with a participation of his suffering. Beautiful. Pray with me. Father God, may we know Jesus more and more deeply. And may we move from surrender towards abandonment for the sake of Christ, our Savior and King. Father God, anything, anytime, anywhere, I am yours afresh. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.